little, little less talking over there in the middle. Hey, 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 focus. Uh huh. Good morning. How art thou? Quick now, sign-ups are in the back table for the women's Bible study. We're still taking takers on that. For the men's Bible study on Wednesday night, still taking takers on that. And if you'd like to go to Jeff Carter and Debbie Carter's house, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday. Thursday. I'm sorry, Thursdays in Wallingford, um, they're, they're going through the book of Matthew. So if you want to get involved in there, um, huh? Young adults. Yeah, they do something sometime, somewhere. Thursday nights here at 7.30, Young Adult Bible Study. You have to be between 18 and 29. Age discrimination, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, the hardest part for getting old for me was people calling me sir. I hate that. Or, or, or you get the girl behind the counter at some place and she calls you hun. Oh, no. I am not your hun. Oh, I hate that. I get that. Right? Or sweetie? Sweetie? Come on. Right? Oh, nay, nay. I am not your sweetie. All right. Let's pray. We'll get into this. Lord, we come before you this morning as your children, as your church. And we ask that, I ask, Lord, that, you know, we, we all come with different things. We come with ups and downs in our life. Lord, we need you desperately. And I would even say, Lord, even those who don't think they need you desperately are in even more of a desperate need. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work, that your Holy Spirit would just penetrate and work in the places of our hearts and in our soul that we just were powerless to do anything with, anything about. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for, for grace and for mercy. And, and uh, thank you that you are our God. And thank you that Jesus is Lord. Pray this morning the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. My rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's do it. We go to the first slide. Romans 11, verse 36. From him and through him and for him, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him, through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the ce- Amen. Amen. This is the center of our God reality, of our of our divine God Jesus consciousness. Paul would say that through him all things were made, and it's in him that we live. Was he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Our God, the God that this talks about, our God, as he is redeeming us, he is calling us and claiming us as his own. 
as his own daughter, as his own child. This is the center of any Jesus movement. It's the center of, maybe we could say it's the center of missions in the church. Everything is being created by and for God to bring him glory. And it's in him that we live. It's the central message of who we are. When we begin to let that sink in and transform us, then we begin to walk in the power of that message. You know, if you've ever studied missions, if you've ever studied church and church history, and you've studied and you look at how the church has grown, how the church has spread, and whether, whether you look back into history, you know, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years ago, or if you look at modern-day examples on the places and the times and the circumstances where Christianity has just taken root and just exploded with growth. There's a few common factors that you'll get to. One of them, one of them is um, poverty or, or extreme poverty or dire need. People, they have absolutely nothing except Christ in their life. And another, another common factor is persecution. The church has been persecuted. People are willing to die for their faith, for faith in Christ. And let me tell you this. If you, if you are willing to die for Jesus, you have moved beyond just believing in God. You have moved just beyond a, a uh, simple, um, yeah, yeah, there, there is a God mentality. And you have moved to a place of genuine faith in love in the creator of all things. You are, if you are willing to die for Christ, there's something deep within you that's taking place or has taken place. There's also something else that's common in, in those churches, those extreme impoverished churches or the persecuted church, they, they cling to the message of Jesus. They, 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 they hold on to, to the message of Christ. And by doing so, they unlock an amazing, liberating power that's in the gospel. Now, I've said this many times before, and, and you know, I say it again. We really don't understand extreme poverty, especially here in Cheshire. Um, extreme poverty isn't something that we wrestle with. We have impoverished parts of our state, places of inner city Waterbury and inner city Hartford, uh, where there is poverty. But extreme poverty, like you only get one meal a day poverty, uh, we don't really understand that all too well. And I will say this, that we have really no idea about being persecuted as a church in America. Let me, let me tell you what persecution is not. Okay, gay marriage is not the church being persecuted, okay? A li any liberal agenda is not the church being persecuted. The, the threat of a socialist president is not persecution, or the threat of a, a Mormon presidential candidate is not persecution of the church. Not, not being able to pray in school is not the church being persecuted. Taking the Ten Commandments out of public buildings, that's not the church being persecuted. 
Persecution is something much, much more deeply than that. When you live for your faith, when you're in danger of economic ramifications, political ramifications, social ramifications, when you live for your faith in public and you're in danger of getting beaten up or put in jail or even maybe killed, now we're talking persecution. Now we are talking persecution. Wes, can you put the picture up? This is Richard Mutua, the guy in the tie. I can never be a pastor in Africa because I always have to dress in ties. The Lord has not sent me there to be a pastor. I met Richard, Mike and I met Richard last year when we were in Africa and we were staying with the Maasai. He was our interpreter. Richard is a, a pastor of a small church in Mombasa, Kenya, which is on the, uh, on the coast, and it's very, very hot, very, very poor in, in that part of the country. He sent me this picture because our church, we sent them money and we bought them that piano, and they were very proud of it, very happy. This is a picture of some of the people in his church, and that is actually his church. That's where he meets in, in that room. And for those of you who remember the Grange, the Grange is looking good, you know, compared to something like that, right? Richard and I have stayed in contact. We actually chat with each other uh, at least once a week through Facebook. And a, a few times he has asked me, uh, Dennis, well, he calls me Pastor Dennis because they have to. I don't understand that, but um, Pastor Dennis, will you pray for our church? Will you pray for me? Because in Richard's part of the world, Mombasa, Kenya, and we don't hear about it all the time, but in that part of the world, Christian churches, they get burned down. People set fire to them because they're Christian. And Christians get beat up frequently because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them just disappear. No one knows what happens to them. And he said, could you, could you pray for us? Because the, and he used this word once, the persecutions are happening in our area. Richard lives in a house that's made of mud and sticks. Because that's what he has. That's a persecuted church. When you walk outside and you are in danger of being beaten, robbed, jailed, killed, or disappeared because you follow Jesus. That's real life and death stuff. Now, we, we in Western world, uh, I think that if we were to ask many Christians and say, hey, would you, would you be willing to die for your faith? Would you be willing to die for Jesus? Many of us would say, well, yeah, I think, I think I would be willing to do that. And maybe those that might take a pause would say, you know, I really hope that I would have the courage in the face of my own death to profess Christ." And we say that very, very quickly many times. Yeah, I'd be willing to die for my faith. And because we have no point of reference for it at all. All we have is stories. Stories of people who have died for their faith. And we have never really experienced that part of life, that part of faith, that part of, of following Christ. And so, yeah, we're quick to say, yeah, I would, I would, I would die for my faith. But maybe... Maybe the bigger question for the church in Western world, America, 
Maybe the bigger or the better question for us is, are we willing to live for our faith? I mean, are we really willing to live our lives for Jesus? I've often asked myself and wrestled myself, wrestled with myself about that question for me personally and for the church. Do we have it that easy? Because we don't live fully for our faith. I mean, I don't know, it's a worthwhile question asking. I know that we're in different circumstances in America, and there's not a lot of persecution that goes on here, kind of, sort of. Sometimes in my... Now, I couldn't, I couldn't decide what word to use here. Is naiveness a word? Naivete. See, naivete just doesn't sound like me. I, sometimes in my stupidity, I wish that... See, that's more me. Sometimes I wish sometimes that we were the persecuted church, that we were that church that had absolutely nothing. And I say in my stupidity because I have no idea what that means. I've no I've never experienced being persecuted for faith, being called judgmental, being called closed-minded is not me being persecuted. See, when the church is forced underground, when it's got to go underground, so to speak, all of, the, all of the tradition for the sake of tradition just becomes really unimportant. And all of the things that we seem to cling to here in our Western churches, they just seem to, they seem to just go away. All of our theological arguments and all our theological paraphernalia just doesn't seem important for the persecuted church. And faith goes back to the simplicity of Jesus. Something very simple and very pure. Let me remind you that Jesus is the author and the completer of our faith. And could it be in that simplicity, could it be that's what's so inviting to people they just want that. They want something to belong to that's, that seems right. They want something that's, <clears throat> they want a place where they can, they can have hope. Hope not just, not just that they're going to get someplace better one day, but hope that there's a community of love and support and grace and mercy. Could it be that simplicity that draws People together in places like in China and in Africa, the churches are exploding with people. Now, maybe some of you that kind of resonated in your spirit. You're like, oh, I want that. And maybe for some of you, uh, you know, you're like, it can't be that simple. We live in America, things aren't that simple here. Okay. But what if? What if we took the message of the Bible and we took the message that the church is going to, to speak and we kind of chiseled away all the garbage and all the junk and all the stupid stuff and we got to the core message of what the Bible is saying? What would that message be? I mean, I, I believe we can go as simple as Jesus is Lord. That's it. But, but even, even if we took that, 
Where can we, where do we take the foundation? I mean, we can even go back even further in, biblical, in the biblical texts. Even further, all the way back to the Pentateuch. The first five books, one of the books in Deuteronomy. And this is what the verse says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 4, 6, this is called the Shema, which is literally hear. Shema Israel, hear Israel, Israel, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This statement is huge. In fact, this is prayed every single day by devout Jews all over the world because it is a huge statement. Because what it's saying is that you no longer have different gods for different parts of your life. There is one God, and his name is Yahweh, and he is Lord. You see, back in, in, in the day when, when the, this book was written in, in uh, the history of Israel, they had gods, all the cultures had gods for everything. I mean, if you wanted it to rain, you would offer something to the God of the rain. And if you wanted the crops to grow, there were gods for crops. And if you wanted kids, there were fertility gods. And, and they had different gods for what kind of work that you did. There were gods for the carpenter and for the stonemason and, and for whatever. And you had to appease these gods. Gods for everything. And they all had to, they all required sacrifices. If you were going down to the river to get water and you had to pass through the forest, you had to offer to the gods of the forest. So you wouldn't get thumped on passing through the forest to get down to the river to fill your bucket. You'd have to offer to those gods. And then back again, just in case you didn't want to get thumped again by the, the gods of the forest, you'd offer them something else. And there's this, this constant uh, mess with all of these gods. And finally, the writer of Deuteronomy says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. And his name is Yahweh. This statement is the foundation of who we are as a church. It's the foundation of the song that we sing every morning. It's the, it's the foundation of our discipleship within the church. We are called to live under the lordship of the one true God. And his lordship is both a it's a complete and graceful salvation, but it's, it's also an unqualified demand on our lives. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And so we now, as Christian, Christians, we consider ourselves monotheists. That means that the point of reference for our life is one God. A polytheist would have many gods. We are monotheists. But see, it's got to go beyond just, just speaking those words. It's even got to go beyond just, just lightly believing in those words. Even the devil knows there's one God. Even the devil believes that there's one God. And I will tell you this, that's not going to do him any good on Judgment Day. And so for us, we respond to this one God by, by putting our faith in his actions, by trusting in his power, by hoping in his promises. 
and by abandoning ourselves to his will and not our own. Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For the Hebrew mindset, the writer of this, this was the essence of life. This was the essence of every day. Go to work, go home, cook the food, do whatever you had to do, life, even the mundane stuff. See, to them, all life was sacred when it was in the context of the living God. Maybe we can say it this way. In the biblical worldview, there is no such thing as sacred and secular. There's no such thing as sacred versus secular because there is no part of creation, no part of our lives that does not come under the lordship of Yahweh, the one God. It all belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. He's created this entire world and all of the people in it. And maybe holiness is not so much about, see, we get caught up when we say, you know, I'm trying to live holy. What you're you're trying to say or what you're trying to do is, I want to live good. I want to make good choices. I want to behave well. I want to follow the rules. And you find out that you can't behave well and you can't follow the rules. And so you just throw this whole idea of holiness out the window. Maybe holiness is about bringing all of your life under the lordship of God. And see, what that is, is a surrender of your heart. And there, in the surrendering of your heart, holiness. It's what it means to love the Lord with all of our heart, and our soul, and our strength. We put it all under him. And we just can't stop here in Deuteronomy, because we have to deal with Jesus. We have to deal with this Savior. Jesus Jesus doesn't change the oneness of God. Jesus is the revealer of the oneness of God. He is the, uh, the pivotal point in our relationship with the Father. And when the early church claimed, Jesus is Lord, It was with the same authority in the same context that the Hebrew mindset would say, the Lord is one. It carried that same weight. And so now we, the church, we have moved away from our polytheistic practices of worshiping other things beside Jesus or or God. We, we, We put away the worship of romantic love. We put away the worship of consumerism and money and job and things and relationships and people. We worship the Lord Jesus, who is the one true God. What the early church was claiming is there is no more bunch of gods. Jesus is Lord. And that's a big deal because back then in Rome, the way Rome, Rome was taking over the world, man, and they were just conquering nations and conquering cultures. And they would say, hey, listen, conquered culture, here's what we're going to do. You're going to, you know, pay us taxes and we're going to thump on you if you rise up and get crazy. But we're going to let you serve and worship your own gods. You can keep your own gods. 
But every year you come and you kneel before the statue of Caesar and you proclaim Caesar is Lord. And the church, the early church said, we will not do that because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Savior. And this, is, this was something very subversive because it had economical ramifications, political, social. They were going against the kingdom. That's why persecution started of the church. Rome was not going to let this, this bunch of Jesus freaks rise up and take over. And so their, their um, answer to it, we're going to kill them. You can see the fact, the statement, Jesus is Lord, excluded all other ultimate authorities and made Christ the ultimate authority. This is the heart of faith. And the church could not, and the church would not let go of that. This Lord of ours, Jesus Christ, he has redeemed and is redeeming the world through his death, through his resurrection. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the, the readers of the Bible would know and, and understand that a little better than we would. To be seated next to the king meant that you were kind of like, you had a favored spot. You were a favored executive to the king. But Jesus is way more than just a favored number two. He's way more than, than just God's, God's sidekick. The Father has given Christ authority as Lord. Look at this verse in Ephesians. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus has been given the power and the authority as Lord of his church. Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is Lord. And so this lordship that's expressed in the Old Testament is the same one God that we find in Christ. Jesus is the covenant claim of God over his people. Jesus is the covenant claim of God over his people. He is the center of our lives and the center of our Christian Creed and this Messiah, this Lord and Messiah, is the central truth for a church that is on mission, that is living in a missional mindset, as, as a missional church. That Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Savior. It's our central truth. And at the heart of, of this church, I hope and I pray, and it continues and we grow in it, is this. Jesus' messianic movement. 
A group of people moving and trying to learn from and emulate and reflect back the character, the spirituality, and even the mission of its founder. And our founder is no other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus came to earth. Okay, you ready for this? To bring glory to God. And in that, we get to stand before the throne of God, invited into worship for all eternity, and never be separated from him again. And so if we were to reflect that and live that back, we are called to bring glory to God in that process. We are invited to worship the Lord our God forever, ever, and ever. And so the the phrase Jesus is Lord begins to to separate the idea of this of this sacred and this secular mindset. If the world is God's and everything in it, then all creation comes under his claim to it through Christ. And there can be no non-God areas in our life. There can't be just things that are, okay, I'm going to give God this and not so much this. It's not an issue. It becomes an issue of our submission to his lordship. And it's not an issue of whether he's rightfully lord over it all anyway, because he is. But it's our surrender to that lordship that becomes the issue. All of life is sacred. You know, as, as a pastor, I remember early off in, in our ministry when we were a Sunday night service, and, and I was big into this idea of creating a, a sacred space. Something that, that would encourage a sense of God in Christ. And as I'm studying spiritual direction, one of the, the things that they talk about is, is creating a sacred space to companion with people and share with people and try to discern what God is doing. And uh, we, call, we call this this room the sanctuary, right? And, and even in that word, there's a sense of sacredness in the, thank, in the sanctuary. It's not the gym. It's not the fellowship hall. It's not, we call it the sanctuary because here, here is where we sing sacred songs to God about God. Here is where we pray sacred prayers. Here is where um, we, we listen to the word of God being preached and we read the sacred scriptures. Sacred things happen in this room. And so we call it the sanctuary. And we set this place aside. But the danger with that, the danger with that is what happens to the rest of our life? What happens to work? What happens to home? What happens to play? What happens to the, the, the relationship with your friends? Are they not sacred? Is it just in here? Is the sacredness of God? And not out there? I'm not saying that this place should not be, have something special about it. But all of your life has been created by the Lord, our God. And all of your life is sacred and holy. 
And when we just say that it's, it's based around a building or a room, then, then we're in trouble to think that we're spending most of our lives outside of anything that's sacred and has to do with God. And that is so not the truth. Maybe instead of creating a sacred place, a sacred room, a sacred space, maybe our goal is to make our entire life sacred. That we would bring work and play. That we would um, bring church. That we would bring our brokenness and our healing and conflict into a place of sacredness. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Yeah, we experience God, at least I'm hoping you're experiencing God in this place. God inhabits the praises of his people. He loves to be with his church gathered, but we cannot produce a need for traditional religious trappings to just experience God. Because if we do, then the rest of our life is just kind of hit or miss. And we're standing out there wondering, is he with me? Am I by myself in this? It, it's called the, uh, the, the Sunday-Monday disconnect. You come to church and there's something very churchy and you experience God. And then Monday morning comes around and then, uh-oh, you're back to the grind. And you're aggravated as soon as you walk out of the door. And you get to work and you're aggravated. And you're aggravated through the whole entire day. And there is no God involved in any of that. And you come home and the house is a mess. The sink's full of dishes. You have children that needs your attention. Where is God in all that? There's this disconnect in us. Okay, Sunday. Ah, oh, I have the God of Sunday. And then Monday. Yeah, not so much. Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday. Oh, I can't wait for Sunday. Thursday. Oh, come on, Sunday. Come on, midweek Bible study. I need something. And we, we separate it all. It's not the way that we, would, that we were designed to live. Our entire lives are sacred and holy if we would just bring them under the lordship of God. I have no idea where I am in my notes. Turn the page, it always works. We can begin by doing, we can begin this process by just just surrender. Give it all to Jesus, man. God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't, I can't work this job another stinking day. I need you. I can't deal with this person another minute. I need you. And then life becomes sacred. I know that, you know, I was thinking, well, and, and maybe some of you are thinking, well, you know, like, is everything really sacred? I mean, everything, Dennis? Come on. So you're telling me that a strip club is sacred. No. That's not what I'm telling you. And a guy, that's the first thing I went to. I'm sorry. I repent. Because see, if you submit your life, your entire life, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then the exploitation of women and sexuality won't even be on your radar anymore. And you will not find yourself in a place like that. See, if we don't, if we don't get a hold of this idea and practice this idea of 
of bringing our lives, surrendering our lives to Christ in every part of our lives to Christ, we can proclaim that we are monotheists. We are Christians. We have one God. But we are actually practicing polytheism, that we have many gods in our life. And there's the God of this and the God of that and the God of this. Listen, I'm a boss. You know, I got to go to work and I got to I got to be hard on these people because they're a bunch of slackers and they need to know who's in charge. So God has no, that whole lovey peace sign Jesus stuff has no place in my work. You can go on and on and on. Are you willing to bring your whole life under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Jesus is Lord is a radical, radical claim. Even for the church today, because it speaks of a specific ultimate allegiance and an ultimate authority. It speaks of norms and, and standards for our lives. And the disconnect for us comes when we as God's people, when we as Jesus followers, align ourselves to other authorities, to the authority of politics, economics, cultural authorities, social, even ethnic. Let me tell you something. The next political party that gets in office is not the Savior. The President of the United States is not Lord and is not the Savior. I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent. Jesus is Lord. Jesus will save. A promotion at your job so you can just have a little bit more money is not the answer Jesus is Lord, and Jesus will save. And we have aligned ourselves to all of these things that we think are just kind of benign and not so important, but it has, they have consequences in the spiritual realm. Is Jesus Lord of all in your life? Because if he's not, then that statement becomes becomes the biggest Christian lie out there. Jesus is Lord. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Easy to say. There are so many things that just clutter our church. Not our church. We have a nice church. Not too cluttered. Churches out there. So many dogmas and traditions that we have to, should do. and, and, And the thing is, we fight over them. And we argue about them. Like, really? So much noise in churches today have we lost the simple message that Jesus is Lord. And we've made the way we dress Lord, what kind of music we do Lord, what kind of curtains we do Lord, kind of toilet paper. We won't skimp on toilet paper. That is my promise to you as the pastor. Certain things that we will stand firm in as Americans. I've traveled the world. I've tried different toilet papers. We have the best. Just saying. There are so many things that just make a mess of church. 
There's a story, um, Jesus is speaking in Revelation chapter 3, and he's speaking to one of the churches, and uh, it says, and, and they're in red letters, so I'm thinking this is Jesus saying, and Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door, and if you open the door, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to eat with you. Have you ever thought for a minute why he's on the other side of the door? How did he get away from being with his people? Have we pushed him out? Bought all our other junk in. We as a church have to continually, continually ask ourselves, is Jesus Lord of all? Not just of the Sunday morning. We just don't want to make, we don't want to make God one God and the God of many gods. I got my Sunday God, I got my Monday God, I got my Tuesday God. Because what happens is then, he becomes, he has no pull in Monday through Saturday. And how can we as a church proclaim Christ is Lord of all until he has become Lord of all for us? How can we go out and tell people, just give your life to Jesus when the church hasn't even fully done that yet? How can we even think of leading people just to a Sunday morning Christ? And not showing them the Christ of every single second that ticks off a clock. When we begin, when we begin to look at our lives as something, as first of all, as, when we begin to look at them as a gift from the Creator. And when we begin to look at them as something that is sacred and holy, then we will experience and manifest the presence of God in our lives every single day. You will experience God at your work. You will experience God in your homes and in your families and with your friends. You will experience God just on a, on a bus ride or a train ride or a hike through the woods. Because all of our lives have been created with sacredness. You see, a church that's on mission is a church where Jesus is all. Not just words. Church on mission is a church where Jesus is Lord is the way that church lives its life. I think I have no more saying about that. I want to end with a song this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up.